Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, well, what do you want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you this morning, Blaine? A uh, little tired, as you may have noticed, since I almost slept through our normal recording appointment. But yes, otherwise I'm good. Excellent. This time, we're looking at the 45th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1972, and the Best Picture winner of that year, The Godfather, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. The Godfather premiered on March 24, 1972, and featured Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone, Al Pacino as Michael Corleone, James Caan as Sonny Corleone, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, and Talia Shire as Connie Corleone. The film's screenplay was written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, based on Mario Puzo's book of the same name. Our uh, synopsis this episode comes from the fine folks at Wikipedia. In 1945, New York City... Corleone crime family Don Vito Corleone listens to requests during his daughter Connie's wedding to Carlo. Michael, Vito's youngest son and a former Marine, introduces his girlfriend Kay Adams to his family at the reception. Johnny Fontaine, a popular singer and Vito's godson, seeks Vito's help in securing a movie role. Vito dispatches his consigliere, Tom Hagen, to persuade studio head Jack Waltz to give Johnny the part. Waltz complies after he finds the severed head of his prize stallion in his bed. Near Christmas, drug baron Salazzo asks Vito to invest in his narcotics business and to provide him protection from the law. Vito declines, citing that involvement in narcotics would alienate his legal and political connections. Suspicious of Salazzo's partnership with the Tataglia crime family, Vito sends his enforcer Luca Brazzi, to meet with the Tataglias. Brazzi is garroted to death during the meeting. Later, enforcers gun down Vito and kidnap Hagen. With Corleone's firstborn, Sonny, now in command, Salazzo pressures Hagen to persuade Sonny to accept the narcotics deal. Sonny retaliates for Luca's death with a hit on Bruno Tataglia. Vito survives the shooting and is visited in the hospital by Michael, he finds him unprotected after NYPD officers on Salazzo's payroll cleared out Vito's guards. Michael thwarts another attempt on his father's life, but is beaten by corrupt police captain Mark McCluskey. Salazzo and McCluskey request to meet with Michael and settle the dispute. Michael feigns interest and agrees to meet, but hatches a plan with Sonny and Corleone Capo Clemenza to kill them and go into hiding. Michael meets Salazzo and McCluskey at a Bronx restaurant after retrieving a handgun planted into the bathroom by Clemenza. He fatally shoots both men. 
Despite a clampdown by the authorities for the killing of a police captain, the five families erupt in open warfare. Michael takes refuge in Sicily, and Fredo, Vito's second son, is sheltered by Mo Green in Las Vegas. Sonny publicly attacks and threatens Carlo for physically abusing Connie. When he abuses her again, Sonny speeds to their home, but is ambushed and murdered by gangsters at a highway toll booth. In Sicily, Michael meets and marries a local woman, Apollonia, but she is killed shortly thereafter by a car bomb intended for him. Devastated by Sonny's death and tired of war, Vito sets a meeting with the five families. He assures them that he will withdraw his opposition to their narcotics business and forego avenging Sonny's murder. His safety guaranteed, Michael returns home to enter the family business and marry Kay. Kay gives birth to two children in the early 1950s. With his father nearing the end of his life and Fredo not suited to lead, Michael assumes the position of head of the Corleone family. Vito reveals to Michael that it was Don Barzini who ordered the hit on Sonny and warns him that Barzini would try to kill him at a meeting organized by a traitorous Corleone capo. With Vito's support, Michael relegates Hagen to managing operations in Las Vegas, as he is not a wartime consigliere. Michael travels to Las Vegas to buy out Green Steak in the family's casinos, and is dismayed to see that Fredo is more loyal to Green than to his own family. In 1955, Vito dies of a heart attack. At Vito's funeral, Tessio asks Michael to meet with Barzini, signaling his betrayal. The meeting is set for the same day as the baptism of Connie's baby. While Michael stands at the altar as the child's godfather, Corleone hitmen murder the dons of the five families in green, and Tessio is executed for his treachery. Michael extracts Carlo's confession to playing a part in Sunday's murder, assuring Carlo he's only being exiled, not murdered. Afterward, Clemenza garrots Carlo to death. Connie confronts Michael about Carlo's death while Kay is in the room. Kay asks Michael if Connie is telling the truth and is relieved when he denies it. As Kay leaves, she sees Capos enter the office, pay reverence to Michael as Don Corleone, the new godfather, before closing the door. So, Blaine, what's your experience with the godfather? This is actually my second time seeing it. The first time I saw it, was a few years ago. I'm not a huge fan of gangster movies that show the gangsters or the mobsters in the the positive light as the heroes, but I gave it a shot because at the time it was number one on the IMDb's top 250 films of all time list. And going into it, looking for something that says this is the greatest film of all time, I actually came away fairly disappointed. I could tell it was well made, but to me it's not number one of all time. Rewatching it now the second time for this podcast, I actually enjoyed it more. So it is very well made. I can see that. It's just, to me, it didn't live up to that number one of all time. So it was a disappointment the first time. But now that I came in with more reasonable expectations of it, I got a lot more out of it. I think the first time I saw it was probably in the 90s on, it was probably Turner Classic Movies. And I had resisted it for some of the same reasons. You know, this is one of those films that has had a huge lasting cultural impact. I don't know that you have series like The Sopranos without The Goodfellas, and I don't know that you have Goodfellas without, you know, The Godfather paving the way um, before it. The lines that are quoted, the set pieces like the, you know, horse's head in the bed, all of that was kind of 
baggage I brought into it, not having seen it before. But it, it, it did win me over. I wouldn't say that it romanticizes or makes heroes out of the gangster and lifestyle, but some of my favorite moments from the film are the quieter slice of life moments. You know, I, I think when the film first won me over was the courtship of Apollina and Vito playing in the garden with his son when he has his heart attack is also one of my favorite scenes. So I, I do like it more for the quieter scenes than the louder scenes. Yeah, definitely. That's a lot more humanizing. Although I mean, I still take issues with some of the attitudes like, you know, sorry, I'm blanking for some reason on the name of Al Pacino's character. Michael Corleone. Yes. So when Michael is telling his original fiance, who he returns to after Apollonia's death, even though he, I don't think she knows about Apollonia, and he's saying, yeah, my dad's got a job just like anybody else. It's no different than any other businessman. Yeah, that may be a character-accurate attitude, but I would have preferred to see that challenged on screen because I think there is a huge difference in the professions. Oh, definitely. One of, one of the areas where I think I go against some of the popular attitudes of the film is a lot of times I hear this film advertised as the corruption of Michael Corleone. I don't think this film was the corruption of Michael Corleone. I think it was the ascension. But, you know, if things had turned out differently, Michael would have been the mobbed up politician, but he still would have been corrupt. That, that's my read on Michael's character. My, Michael had absolutely no uh, illusions about what his family did. I think he wanted to be more like Tom to where he had greater maybe deniability than someone like Sonny, but I, I don't think Michael was an innocent in any way. Oh, no. In the letter of the law, he's an accessory to a laundry list of crimes, even if he's an accessory after the fact. I think you're right. This is not about his corruption. You know, this is at best his transformation from villain to supervillain. I like that. Yeah. It it does have a killer cast. I mean, I I could have spent 10 minutes rattling off um, the cast at the beginning. I tried to focus on the characters that were kind of emphasized more in, in the synopsis, but who, what performances in particular uh, stood out to you, if any? This, I think, might be one of Brando's last great roles, and I say that as a big fan of the Superman film that he's going to make in about six years' time. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, especially when you see how early it was in the careers for a lot of them, because, yeah, Al Pacino, James Caan, it's hard to say which one sticks out because they're just consistently good across the board. I keep forgetting Diane Keaton is in it, even though she does good work in it. She's just so much younger and just hasn't aged into the look I'm used to from her. So when I see her, it's, oh, right, she's in this. Abe Vigoda in a very different role because I'm mostly used to him from the... Now I'm blanking on the police sitcom. A Barney Miller. Barney Miller, yes. Sorry, normally I've been awake for a good hour and a half to, to two hours before we record this. And as we said, I've been awake about half an hour and woke woke up because my wife was saying, hey, didn't you have a podcast at 6 a.m.? <laughs> pull up my phone at 6.40 and Trey's on there going, is everything okay? Um, I also keep forgetting that Sterling Hayden is in it. And possibly because the first time I saw this, I hadn't yet seen The Killing which is where he really came on the radar for me. That's 
the Stanley Kubrick film, of course. Right. I I, I want to highlight John Cazal. I don't want to go too much into um, Godfather 2, and I know his role in Godfather 2. Well, I don't. I have yet to see The Godfather 2. I, I was just going to say, his his role is bigger in it than it is here. That, that's all I'm going to say. Okay. But I, I think he's an actor that a lot of listeners may not be familiar with. You know, this came out in 72, and tragically he died of lung cancer at 78. But when you look at his very short filmography, very few actors have probably had the percent ratio of important films in their body of work. You know, he goes on from this to do um, The Conversation, then Dog Day Afternoon, then The Godfather 2, and then Deer Hunter, and then he passed away. So a very short body of work, but with the exception of the conversation, we're going to be talking about um, every single one of those films as a contender, if not a winner, over the next four or five episodes. Yeah. Okay. And the conversation may come up whether it was nominated for that award or not, because that is one that, well, I'm a fan and actually looking at it, it was nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win, but... Yeah, he got the nomination. Are there any particular scenes that stood out as your favorite? I, I think, along with you, the, the courtship of Apollonia, I wasn't super happy with how he forced that courtship on her father. But then it did look like from, you know, once he was given that chance, he didn't use any leverage or any threats. And it was a genuine courtship, which might have been sort of his last chance to turn his life around had they left him and Apollonia alone, but they didn't. And I think that was what really pushed him over. So that was a good sequence. I mean, I understand better this time. The first time I sat down and watching it and hearing it called The Godfather, I thought the focus was going to be on Brando's character. But now I realize, no, this is Pacino's story and about how he steps into that role and not about who has the role when the film begins. Right, and just to clarify for our listeners, I'm assuming the same is true with you, Blaine. A lot of different cuts of this film exist. We're getting into that era to where director cuts and recuts is maybe a a better term, are going to be a a thing. Uh, Just so our listeners know, where possible, Blaine and I are both trying to watch the cut of the film that would have been nominated for the award. So, for example, I know there are edits of this and Godfather 2 that take flashbacks and put everything chronological. That's not the version of the film we watch for this. No, the the one I've got is the 177-minute Blu-ray that, you know, the description on the back has, in bold capitals, the original classic, which is apparently meticulously restored. The only change that I know that has been made since the original is upgrading it from the stereo sound it would have been released with in 1972, if not mono sound, up to the 5.1 digital. I know stereo sound, the, the first on-film stereo sound was 2001 A Space Odyssey, but that was only the 70 millimeter prints and it worked with stereo, or with a magnetic stereo tracks. The first on-film optical stereo was actually Star Wars in 1977. So if you're watching a 35mm print of this in 1972, it would have been mono audio. And there was earlier stuff. Creature from the Black Lagoon had surround sound, but that required 
five record players in the theater with five people dropping their needles at the same time as the projectionist started the film. So it was not of a consistently high quality. <laughs> and if that film broke, forget it. I, I think my favorite character from this is actually Tom Hagen. I really like Robert Duvall's performance. And I was just kind of fascinated by the notion of kind of this unofficially adopted son who, because he's not Italian and he's not really family, he'll, he'll never be what Michael or Sonny or technically even Fredo has the capacity to go higher than Tom. So he's kind of already hit the ceiling in the organization, so to speak but is still by and large treated as another brother. Mm -hmm. He's definitely been brought into the fold. And that's part of it to show that they're not, their, their actions are not completely negative. He was a homeless orphan when they took him in. And that part of that, the opening scene is critical for a viewer like me, because it starts off by showing sometimes the system fails and then these guys will step in. I think the only other film that I, well, the only film I've really, really enjoyed that has the mobsters or gangsters as kind of the heroes of the piece is Fritz Lang's M. Yes. From 1931. And part of the way they established that is by showing how incredibly corrupt the police are. And I think that's why I'm having a harder time accepting this than a lot of friends. I mean, I'm a white male who grew up in Western Canada where the police corruption and other issues are not nearly as pronounced. I think, I mean, I've been living in the city for 45 years now, and there was maybe a three or four year period where we had a police commissioner who was corrupt, not in terms of working with organized crime, but in terms of, you know, erasing his wife's speeding tickets and that sort of thing. And there was enough public outcry to get him shut down because that's not what we expect of our police services. And they responded. So we have never really had the need to have organized crime deliver the justice that the system is not delivering. Not that it's perfect, it's just not to the extreme where the public would welcome that. Whereas I understand that's how most organized crime manages to get set up and stay rooted without having people turn them in on the street once they, they know who they are. The reason they don't have people testifying against them and turning them in is because they recognize, no, in our neighborhood, we have to take care of our people or they will step up. So they're filling in that role. Yeah, I think the, and I don't know anything about, or I don't know anything more, I guess I should say, than the average person about real life organized crime. But one of the things that I think they wisely do to start building sympathy is, a good bit of the respect and power comes from their role in the neighborhood. And part of it is probably you have corrupt cops like McCluskey, but when you see the types of things that are being brought to Vito, it, it's, you know, I need help with this matter. This thing is not, you know, and maybe what their grievance is, the other person is technically not breaking the law, so even if the cops weren't corrupt, they couldn't do anything about it anyway, right? This man keeps coming around and seeing my daughter, and I don't want him to see my daughter. Well, if your daughter's willingly going out with him, what can the police really do, right? If the ages are appropriate, you know, uh, everything else. But Vito will send his men over 
to take care of it so this guy never comes around and you know harms your daughter as well i i think another key component is they try to do the they're bad but they're not so bad and what i mean by that is the whole war really hinges on Salazzo wanting to get into the narcotics trade and Don Corleone advising everybody out of it, saying, look, people tolerate what we do now, but you come to me because you think I've got all of the cops and I've got all of the judges, etc. We start dealing drugs, all that goes away. So there was kind of that the Corleones have a line that they won't cross mentality that Coppola projects. Yeah, although, again, if you look at the motivation behind it, it's not that, no, the drugs are too evil. It's that, no, it'll reflect poorly on us. So they're not worried about the public. They're worried about themselves. Right. So there's little altruism there in saying we're not going to cross that line. And even the guy who's suggesting it, you know, and who clearly is the one trying to get it in there, He's saying, well, you know, we won't deal at schools. We won't deal to white people. It's just, it's a purely racist view saying, you know, these black people have no futures anyway. So why not sell to them and make the money? Which is, yeah, that's, to me, that's the thing that sets the Corleone's away from everyone else at that table. That's the argument he's making. So, yeah, that's not something that, that that's not an attitude that's easily supported. And I'll also say this. I think the film's paced very well. This was in one of the infamous, you know, in the days of VHS, double tape sets, right? But it doesn't really feel it's two-hour-plus runtime to me. Yeah, two-hour-plus 57 minutes, so it's practically three. But, yeah, it moves. There's there's really nothing in here where it drags or it goes too long. I, I would say that of these 177 minutes, they all need to be here. Mm-hmm. and. This is a part one, part two. So if anything, this is uh, at least not having seen part two yet, but the reputation it has is that in a lot of ways, this is more like Lord of the Rings, where it's just the first half of the story and it's going to keep going. It could feel like a sequel because of the point where they chose to break it. But in that final frame, you know, oh, this story's not over. There is more coming for these characters. And it's a it's a good foreboding in- ending. Yeah, it is. So we know, at least, well, I shouldn't say no, because I haven't seen the sequel. Spoilers for a podcast two months from now. But at least my expectations are that we're going to see a lot more strain on the Michael K. marriage when she realizes the path that he has chosen to walk. And we're going to see what happens where Michael is now the godfather, as opposed to Vito. Yeah, because Michael has just lied to her, and... She buys into it because she wants to, but then as she sees what's starting to happen as that door starts to close, you know she's lying to herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the confirmation bias. Yep. Which, as a person with science background, it, it frustrates me how often that happens. We can turn it around and point to similar issues with people choosing not to vaccinate their kids and whatnot. When you hear conflicting stories rather than digging into what's the truth, you say, this is the one I prefer to believe, so this is the one I choose to believe. And everybody is prone to it. Nobody is immune. The hard part is recognizing when you're doing it so you can shift gears. 
So is there anything else you wanted to cover with the film, or do you want to move on to the winners and nominees? Yeah, I think we can do that. So the 45th Annual Awards were hosted on March 27th, 1973, in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, hosted by Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, and Rock Hudson, directed by Marty Pacetta. So, Best Picture clearly went to The Godfather, beating out Cabaret, Deliverance, The Emigrants, and Sounder. Best Director went to Bob Fosse for Cabaret. So it's one of the unusual years where Best Picture and Best Director were split. The other nominees were John Boorman for Deliverance, Jan Troll for The Emigrants, Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather, and Joseph L. Mankiewicz for Sleuth. And I do want to note, we discussed it last month, but The Emigrants is actually a Swedish film that was released in 1971. So Best Actor, Marlon Brando won the award, although he declined to participate and said uh, Sachin Cruz Littlefeather to explain why he was declining. Basically, politics and his attitude towards the Academy, which had a, was a speech that drew a famous reaction from John Wayne. The other nominees were Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier for Sleuth, Peter O'Toole for The Ruling Class, and Paul Winfield for Sounder. Best Actress went to Liza Minnelli for Cabaret, beating out Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues, Maggie Smith for Travels with My Aunt, Cicely Tyson for Sounder, and Liv Ullman for The Immigrants. Best Supporting Actor went to Joel Grey for Cabaret, beating out Eddie Albert for The Heartbreak Kid, as well as James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino, all for The Godfather. Eileen Heckart won Best Supporting Actress for Butterflies Are Free, beating out Jeannie Berlin for The Heartbreak Kid, Geraldine Page for Pete and Tilly, Susan Tyrell for Fat City, and Shelley Winters for The Poseidon Adventure. The Best Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previously pub Produced or Published went to The Candidate, by Jeremy Larner, beating out The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Louis Bunuel and Jean-Claude Carrière, Lady Sings the Blues, Murmur of the Heart, and Young Winston. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to The Godfather, from Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo based on Puzo's novel, beating out Cabaret, The Emigrants, Pete and Tilly, and Sounder. Best foreign language film went to The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from France, beating out The Dawns Here Are Quiet in the USSR, I Love You, Rosa, from Israel, My Dearest Senorita from Spain, and New Land from Sweden. I find it interesting that they didn't also nominate The Emigrants in this category, as the fact that it's the only one that cracked the best picture probably would have taken this home in a landslide. You know, I don't know if they've done that yet, so maybe there was something that precluded them from doing it? Perhaps. It's hard to tell when so few end up in the best picture nominee list. It's, there's a uh, a year in the early 2000s we could talk about where I remember the nominees came out and went, well, I wouldn't write my speech if I was anything other than this film in that category. Mm -hmm. And it may also be what they chose to submit it for. So the best documentary film went for Marjo and beating out Ape and Super Ape, Malcolm X, Mansion and the Silent Revolution. And this is the documentary Malcolm X, also known as Malcolm X, his own story as it really happened. This is not the Denzel film. That comes later. Best Documentary Short Subject went to This Tiny World, bidding out 100 Twasser's Rainy Day, KZ, Selling Out, and The Tide of Traffic. Best Live Action Short Subject went to Norman, Rockman's, or Norman Rockwell's World and American Dream, bidding out Frog Story and Solo. Best Animated Short Subject went to A Christmas Carol, 
that's a version I don't think I've seen. Broadcast on ABC in 1971, uh, released theatrically soon after. It beat out Kama Sutra Rise Again and Tup Tup. Now, the best original dramatic score, you have to do a little bit of digging to find the full history here. Mm. Originally, The Godfather won. So that went to uh, Nino Rota for the score for The Godfather. But then they found out that the love theme from The Godfather had previously been used in a 1958 film that he had scored. So it did not count as an original score and was thus disqualified. So with that change, the award then went to Limelight, which was given posthumously to Charlie Chaplin, even though the film was 20 years old, because it had never previously aired in L.A. So was L.A. the qualifying city? Because I, I knew that it did air in New York in 52. Yeah, L.A. is the qualifying city, and it stayed okay. that way for a long time. I think it's only in the, in the as a response to the COVID pandemic that they have considered changing that for the streaming options. Okay. But yeah, that's there's a, a film that wins in the 2000s that a lot of people don't feel should have won that used that to postpone its eligibility for a year. But Limelight won, beating out Images with a score by John Williams. Napoleon and Samantha, for score by Buddy Baker. The Side Adventure, also by John Williams. And Sleuth by John Addison. So John Williams has a habit of competing against himself in this category. I think that's to his de detriment. I mean, I, you know, have, have I watched all of these films? No, but Side Adventure has a really good score. Yes, and I have seen Limelight, and the score didn't jump out at me. I think part of it that impresses people is that Charlie Chaplin was such a renaissance man, he took part in every aspect of filmmaking, so he would direct, he would write, he would score his own films. Now, the best scoring adaptation and original song score, that went to Cabaret, adapted by Ralph Burns, Lady Sings the Blues, adapted by Gilaska, and Man of La Mancha, adapted by Lawrence Rosenthal, the other two nominees. Best original song for the picture went to The Morning After from The Poseidon Adventure. Uh, that beat out the title track from Ben, Come Follow, Follow Me from The Little Ark, Marmalade, Molasses, and Honey from The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, and Stranger the Ways of Love from The Stepmother. Costume design went to Travels with My Aunt uh, by Anthony Powell. The Godfather was nominated, as were Lady Sings the Blues, Poseidon Adventure, and Young Winston. No Edith Head nominations this year. Best Sound went to Cabaret, beating out Butterflies Are Free, The Candidate, The Godfather, and The Poseidon Adventure. Best Art Direction went to Cabaret, beating out Lady Sings the Blues, Poseidon Adventure, Travels with My Aunt, and Young Winston. Best Cinematography went to Cabaret, beating out 1776, Butterflies Are Free, Poseidon Adventure, and Travels with My Aunt. And Best Film Editing went to Cabaret, beating out Deliverance, The Godfather, The Hot Rock, and The Poseidon Adventure. Honorary Awards... L.B. Abbott and A.D. Flowers got a Special Achievement Award for the visual effects of the Poseidon Adventure. That had been a standalone category, which went away, but it will come back. And Academy Honorary Awards went to Charles S. Boren and Edward G. Robinson. So there were 15 films with multiple nominations. Cabaret and the Godfather were tied with 10. Eight nominations for the Poseidon Adventure, five for Lady Sings the Blues, four for The Emigrants, Sleuth, Sounder, and Travels with My Aunt. Three nominations for Butterflies Are Free, Deliverance, and Young Winston. And two nominations each for The Candidate, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, The Heartbreak Kid, and Pete and Tilly. And uh, the following three films got multiple awards. That's eight wins for Cabaret, three wins for The Godfather, and two wins for The Poseidon Adventure. So 
Cadbury took some awards that it shouldn't have. I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. Bob Fosse should not have won Best Director, and Cadbury's not a bad film, but really the only thing that stood out in the film is the editing, which I'm okay with it winning for, but I, I don't really think that's a hallmark of Bob Fosse's editing. I can't really say that he deserves it like you could argue Gene Kelly deserved it for could have deserved it for an American in Paris or singing in the rain for choreography because there's not really a lot of choreography to cabaret. There's a lot of music in it, but it's not really a song and dance musical, if you will. And I, I could argue that Pacino should have been under best actor instead of best supporting actor, but both James Conn and Robert Duvall give better performances than Joel Gray. Having seen Cabaret, and again, I'm not slagging it off, the MC is at best a caricature, not a character. It basically leads the performances that are kind of intended as the Greek chorus of um, what's actually going on in the film. But I argue that character's got no character of its own, so I don't think that singing well qualifies you or makes you um, a better candidate for best actor than people who are actually portraying three-dimensional characters. I know that sounds harsh, but when I saw that, I was just like, no, no. Having never seen Cabaret, I I can't comment on that. Actually, this is the only Best Picture nominee I've seen from this year. As we get into the 80s and 90s, I'll have seen a lot more. I have seen The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Poseidon Adventure, and I have no qualms about how they play out with the possible exception of best dramatic score. That one, being familiar with Poseidon Adventure, Limelight, and The Godfather, yes, The Godfather score is iconic, and it's another one of those things that is referenced everywhere. So if it had not been disqualified, I would have had no issues with that taking it home. Right. But once that's disqualified, this should have been the second win for John Williams in one category or another. All right, so it it sounds like... Uh, we're, we we don't have any issues with this taking home Best Picture for the year. No. Like I said, um, my first watch, I was questioning because it was so far below expectations of Best Movie of All Time. But the second watch, no, coming in with better expectations, that was my issue. I have no issues with it taking home Best Picture. It is, it is extremely good. So shall we move on to the Golden Globes for the year? Yes. All right, so for Best Motion Picture Drama... The Godfather won, beating Deliverance, Frenzy, Poseidon Adventure, and Sleuth. And I think this Frenzy is one of Hitchcock's last nominations for this. And again, huge Hitchcock fan. I've seen Frenzy. I don't mind Godfather beating it. Best Comedy or Musical went to Cabaret, beating out Avanti, Butterflies Are Free, 1776, and Troubles with My Aunt. 1776 is a better musical, but okay. Best Performance in a Motion Picture Drama. Actor went to Marlon Brando for The Godfather. Beating Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier in Sleuth, Al Pacino for The Godfather, and John Voight for Deliverance. So Pacino flipped categories in the two and lost to to Brando this time. Actress went to Liv Ullman for The Emigrants, who was nominated for the Oscar. Uh, beating out Diana Ross, Cicely Tyson, Trish Vandevere, Tuesday Weld, and Joanne Woodward. For the best performance in a comedy or musical, actor went to Jack Lemmon for Avanti, beating out Eddie Albert, Charles Grodin, Walter Matthau, and Peter O'Toole for Butterflies Are Free, Heartbreak Kid, Pete and Tilly, and Man of La Mancha. Actress went to Liza Minnelli for Cabaret, beating Carol Burnett and Pete and Tilly, Goldie Hawn for Butterflies Are Free, 
Juliet Mills for Avanti, and Maggie Smith for Travels with My Aunt. Best Supporting, and this is where they merged the, the genres. Supporting Actor also went to Joel Grey for Cabaret. And the only nomination for The Godfather there was James Caan. So also nominated were James Coco for Man of La Mancha, Alec McCowan for Travels with My Aunt, and Clive Revel for Avanti. Supporting Actress went to Shelley Winters for The Poseidon Adventure, beating out Marisa Berenson for Cabaret, Jeannie Berlin for The Heartbreak Kid, Helena Kalianoitz for Kansas City Bomber. I hope I didn't destroy that name too badly. And Geraldine Page for Pete and Tilly. Interesting that Eileen Eckhart didn't even get a nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, Best Director went to Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather, beating out John Boerman, Bob Fosse, Alfred Hitchcock for Frenzy, and Billy Wilder for Avanti. Best Screenplay, again The Godfather, beating out Avanti, Cabaret, Deliverance, Frenzy, and The Heartbreak Kid. Best Original Score, here The Godfather kept it. Vina Rota, beating out Frenzy, The Getaway, Lady Sings the Blues, and The Poseidon Adventure. And Best Original Song went to the title song from Ben, which was nominated for the Oscars, beating Carry Me from Butterflies Are Free, Dueling Banjos for Deliverance, Marmalade, Molasses, and Honey for The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, Mine Hair for Cabaret, Money Money for Cabaret, Morning After for The Poseidon Adventure, and Take Me Home for Molly and Lawless John. And I am surprised that Dueling Banjos was an original song for Deliverance. <laughs> yeah, and actually looking at it, even the link on Wikipedia says that it was a bluegrass composition composed in 1954, which he called Feudin Banjos, but somehow they adapted it and it qualified. Best Foreign Film English Language went to Young Winston, beating out Images, Living Free, The Ruling Class, and Z and Company. Best Foreign Film in a Foreign Language was a tie for two Swedish films, The Emigrants and the New Land, beating out Cries and Whispers from Sweden, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from France, Mirage from Peru, and Roma from Italy. So just real quick, The New Land is a sequel to The Emigrants. So that's like awarding a tie to Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Okay. New Star of the Year actor, Edward Albert, won for Butterflies Are Free. Other nominations were Frederick Forrest for When the Legends Lie, Kevin Hooks for Sounder, Michael Sachs for Slaughterhouse-Five, and Simon Ward for Young Winston. New Star of the Year actress, Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues, beat out Sean Barbara Allen for You Like My Mother, Marisa Berenson for Cabaret, Mary Costa for The Great Waltz, Madeline Kahn for What's Up, Doc, and Victoria Principal for the life and times of George Roy Bean. I didn't realize that was considered a new star for Madeline Kahn at that point when she was in What's Up, Doc? Uh, and Best Documentary Film, Elvis on Tour and Walls of Fire, tied beating out Marjo, Russia, and Sapporo Winter Olympic Games. Television, Best Series Drama went to Columbo. Yay! Beat out America, Mannix, Medical Center, and the Waltons. Comedy or Musical, all in the Family beat out MASH, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Maud, and Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. Television film went to That Certain Summer, beating out Footsteps, The Glass House, Kung Fu, and A War of Children. Best Actor in a Drama Series went to Peter Falk as Columbo, beating out Mike Connors as Mannix, William Conrad as Cannon, Chad Everett from Medical Center, David Hartman from The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, and Robert Young from Marcus Welby, M.D. Best Actress in a Drama Series went to Gail Fisher for Mannix, Beating out Ellen Corby for the Waltons and Jeffries for the Delphi Bureau, Michael Lernan from the Waltons, Peggy Lipton from the Mon Squad, and Susan St. James from Macmillan and Wife. Best Actor Comedy or Musical Series went to Red Fox for Sanford and Son, beating out Alan Alda for MASH, Bill Cosby for the new Bill Cosby Show. 
Paul Lind for The Paul Lind Show, Carol O'Connor for All in the Family, and Flip Wilson for The Flip Wilson Show. Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical Series went to Jean Stapleton for All in the Family, beating out Julie Andrews for The Julie Andrews Hour, Beatrice Arthur for Maud, Carol Burnett for The Carol Burnett Show, and Mary Tyler Moore for The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Best Supporting Actor went to James Brolin for Marcus Welby, M.D., beating out Ed Asner for The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Ted Knight for The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Harvey Corman for The Carol Burnett Show, and Rob Reiner for All in the Family. And final category, Best Supporting Actress went to Ruth Buzzy for Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, beating out Susan Day for The Partridge Family, Valerie Harper for The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Vicki Lawrence for The Carol Burnett Show, Audra Lindley for Bridget Loves Bernie, Sally Struthers for All in the Family, and Elena Verdugo for Marcus Welby, M.D. So do you have any comments on that set? Only that I, I looked it up real quick. Uh, What's Up Doc was Madeline Kahn's film premiere. Okay. Well, she is possibly the best part of that movie that ostensibly stars Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. It's been one of those comedies I've been afraid to go back to because comedies of the era, screwball comedies of the era, don't always age well, but it was a childhood favorite of mine. Now, at this point, we typically look at how things fared on the IMDb and on Letterboxd over time. I would say this fared well. I was going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb. This may be the one year where a foreign film doesn't take the top five spots. As far as Letterboxd is concerned, The Godfather is the best film of 1972. If we broaden our scope, as far as Letterboxd is concerned, The Godfather is the best film of the 1970s. And if we look at all films ever made and sort them by rating, then it is the highest rated English language film. That, aside from a couple of odd, there's some small like, low vote documentaries, mm-hmm. Twin Peaks The Return comes in here for some reason, because a lot of times when it's associated with a TV show, it gets a boost because people are rating it for how the TV show fares. So, yeah, it's there now. I said when I first watched it, at the time it was the number one rated film of all time on the Internet Movie Database. It has since dropped to the number two film of all time behind the Shawshank Redemption. Okay. So, yeah, as far as the voters are concerned, it's the best film of of the decade. Even AFI ranked it as the second greatest film in American film history behind Citizen Kane. So every time we have the overall communal ratings, this takes it home. So yeah, there's nothing else that's even competitive. If we look at yeah, if we look at Letterboxd for the year, it is uh, The Godfather, then Solaris, then The New Land, and down from there. Okay. So I think What's Up, Doc? It that's actually number ten for the top twelve of the year, and that's the next American film. Uh, and then Cabaret comes in at thirteen. So yeah, I think it, it's really saying that history agrees. So so I think that just leaves us with, who do we recommend this to? If you like anyone who likes the gangster subgenre, anyone who likes crime films in general, anyone who just likes really good, rich storytelling. We, we didn't talk about it much. This is a period piece. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's you know, portraying an era, you know, 20 years prior to when the film was being made and not necessarily, you know, 80, 90 years, but that's something else that kind of sets it apart from most of its competitors. 
Yeah, I think, as I said, even though I I wasn't as high on it as I expected to be the first time I saw it, it is an extremely well-made film. I've got no issues with it taking home Best Picture. So I would I would recommend it again. Yeah, if you like that that genre, absolutely check it out. Because it is a stellar example of the genre. If you're not a fan of the genre, just be open and check it out anyway. Because it is a well-made film. And I'll just add this. Like, like you said, with the exception of Brando, this is a starting point for a lot of actors that we can that are generally considered like the great actors of the latter part of the 20th century, early 21st century. You know, this is Diane Keaton before Annie Hall. This is Al Pacino's first film. This isn't Robert Duvall's first film, but it's kind of his first big film. James Caan wasn't too far into his career, etc. Yeah, it is. It is near the start of a film for, or the start of the careers of so many people. It's even worth watching as a, a student of film because it has been referenced so so much over the years that you will get more out of other films if you've already seen this because they make reference to it so many times. There's, you know, obviously The Simpsons tends to lampoon everything that's of a cultural significance, but they've even got sequences that are homages to, you know, someone getting beat in the street and the, the horse in the bed. So it's worth seeing at least once if you like film just to recognize all the references that come from it. Nora Ephron uses it as kind of like this weird male bonding thing in You've Got Mel. Tom Hanks makes a reference to it. Meg Ryan's character has a little bit about why is The Godfather kind of the defining film for males of a certain generation, and you don't get that if you haven't seen this film. So, again, we it is easy to recommend. It's in terms of the warning for parents, which we haven't been doing as much recently. This has all the warnings. Yes. Yeah. The the profanity, the violence especially. Then there's the profanity, and there there is a, a sneeze and you'll miss it nude scene, but there is some nudity in this as well. So shall we tell people what we are coming back for next month? Yes. Next month the con is on as we look at the Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And the other nominees for the year were American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, which is a Swedish film directed by Ingmar Bergman, so you might find another other names as well, The Exorcist, and A Touch of Class. So join us for that next month, and thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.